0: These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community.
1: What I I try to focus on is what's the outcome or the benefit that I'm looking for? and. You know, leaving the how as much as possible up to them. But I'm also open to being challenged. And I find oftentimes that I don't really fully understand the space in the way that they do. And so I'm saying, here's kind of what we want. And here's how I think we should do it. But then they'll say, no, that doesn't make sense. Here, you know, Here's how we should be really be thinking about it. And so that back and forth actually creates a better solution in the end.
0: Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee founder of And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we have a conversation with Kit Colbert, CTO at VMware, exploring his approach and lessons around leading at different orders of magnitude. We cover what he learned making the leadership leap, from 150 people to over 2,300 people, what you can do now to prepare to lead teams orders of magnitude larger than your current team, letting go of being a technologist. Plus, we explore the dynamics behind effective communication with the highest ROI at different orders of magnitude, and how to operationalize innovation and build an innovation system. Let me introduce you to Kit. Kit joined VMware in 2003, and as CTO, oversees advancing research and development efforts, the VMware engineering services team, the design UX team, and the company's ESG commitments. Prior to becoming CTO in 2021, Kit served in multiple roles, including VMware's cloud CTO, general manager of VMware's cloud native apps business, CTO for VMware's end user computing business, and as the lead architect for VMware vRealize operations suite enjoy our conversation with Kit Colbert. Welcome, Kit. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Looking forward to the conversation. To get in a little bit, just to set some context, you've been at VMware for about 19 years, which is an extraordinary tenure uh, when, when you zoom out and you really consider just the industry that we're in. And in the last year, you've gone from leading about 150 folks to over 2,300. So is that first off, is that is that about right? And can you walk us through what that transition was like to change your magnitude of leadership in that way? I've
1: been at VMware just over 19 years now, which in Silicon Valley is many lifetimes. Basically a lifer <laughs> here now. <laughs> you know, to the point of your question, I have been able to to grow considerably throughout that 19 years. And I think it's one of those things that, that I always ask myself, it's like, am I having fun? And am I learning? And I think both of those have generally been true during my career at VMware, which has been you know just fantastic. And yeah, so it was probably what, 2016-ish uh, that I was managing that team of about 150 odd people. And then it was last year, around uh, you know just after labor day last year where they announced my promotion to be the CTO for the company and you know the, the CTO office for VMware had traditionally been a smaller org- well, relatively speaking smaller organization around 400 odd folks And now, you know, as part of uh, this reorganization they're doing, they're consolidating a number of other teams within the office of the CTO. And so that ballooned the size of it up to it was about 2100 or so 2150. And now we're closing in on 2300, give or take. It's been interesting because it is a massive, you know, order of magnitude uh, increase in the size of number of people. But what I find interesting is that what I'm doing here, I'm relying a lot on my experience for that 150 person team where I again, there went from managing five ish people before that to having a team fairly quickly about 150. That first time around, a lot of those mistakes I made stem from the fact that I had never managed a team of that scale, and not really understanding how I had to shift from being a leader who drives and leads purely through influence to more of one who it does have Decision-making authority and needs to sometimes step in and just make the call and let's move forward, right? And so I think a lot of those lessons I learned from there have actually set me up pretty well for this current situation. Now, obviously, again, we're talking about an order of magnitude bigger, but in some ways, between 150 and 2,300, a lot of the problems are are fairly similar.
0: There's a a couple different follow-up questions related to to some of the different elements of this. So you, you mentioned your experience leading, you know, roughly the magnitude of 150 people, sort of like operating at that scale prepared you a lot for the the habits of leadership for a greater order of magnitude you mentioned not understanding or running into a challenge early on about not understanding the shift from leading through influence versus having decision-making authority is there a specific moment or an example that comes to mind of when that challenge came up and when you sort of confronted that either for the first time or I guess an example that illustrates that I'm
1: trying to think of a specific example from my time this is Six plus years ago now, give or take, so (laughs) things are a little hazy. But um, I think one of the things is that it's easy to like say, "Hey, hey, let's go do stuff. Like, let's go do something." And you know, here's a new project, you know, whatever it is, and get that spun up. What gets challenging, at least for me, was first off saying no to things because this is you know as important as what you say yes to. But also, maybe a bit more subtly, is what sort of guardrails do you put around the things that you do say yes to? So it's like, yeah, we're going to do this, but we're not going to do anything within that scope that we're going to put some structure around it, right? And I feel, I feel like I was like looking at a lot of different people and hoping that they would make some of these decisions. And I didn't realize that they were kind of looking to me to make the decision. And so I think it created a lot of churn and stress within the organization. I also think that in general, I was probably pushing a little bit too hard, trying to do too much all at once. And so there's kind of that, how much stress can the system take that I wasn't being very thoughtful about. And so, you know, that's one of the, the, the important leadership lessons I learned there was first, people are looking at me to make a decision. So I got to just go and make it. And, you know, and by the way, I think one of the challenges for me personally is that I really like to, I don't know what the term would be, um, make people happy, I guess. And so it's like, yep, it's like tough to for me to, yeah, it's tough for me to disappoint people. And oftentimes saying no or putting restrictions or just making a decision in general, there's going to be people who are unhappy. And yeah, I I really make sure I try to listen to people and hear them out. But in the end, you know, you got to make a call. And so some in some ways, maybe I was avoiding that a little bit. And then secondly, I think also, I didn't really understand uh, what was it I was reading some book and the the, the person was talking about leadership made this example of like someone like, you know, holding a lasso and sort of spinning it and like you as a leader in the middle, and you're sitting there, you're, you're solid, you're grounded, and, and you're not really moving at all. But People in the team, some of them are going to be at the end of that lasso and they're getting spun all around in circles. And <laughs> for them, it feels very different. So I think that was the other aspect for me that I didn't necessarily recognize is how do I help take people along with this? And how do I also ensure that we're not making changes too fast? We're not trying to push too hard, but at the same time staying, you know, leaning into things.
0: That's such a good point because I feel like I have been the person on the lasso being sort of on the other end of the leader, spinning them around in a a chaotic way. How do you transfer sort of that stability to the extended part of the folks that you're working with? So
1: that's tough. A lot of it in my mind comes down to communication Giving people the context within which to understand what we're doing, the why of it. I think once they can see that and sort of situate, uh, situate themselves within it, then it helps get, give them more of that feeling of stability. What I frequently underestimate, even to this day, is the level uh, and amount of communication that's required to actually achieve that. You can't just send out an email and expect it all to be done, right? You know, you could write a whole long dissertation on it that maybe explains it all, but not everyone's going to read that because it's too long. So it's how do you keep people engaged? How do you keep keep their attention? And that sort of the, the general construct of managing through change is a really difficult one, but one that I found you just have to over-communicate. And it feels like over-communication. You're like, how can I still be explaining this? But a lot of times people, that's what people need in order to be able to move through that without feeling too much like they're at the end of the lasso.
0: There's a lot of folks in our community, in terms of where they're at in terms of their career, the the heads of engineering, or or say like the senior director, VP of engineering, who's leading maybe a mid-sized organization of about 100 to 150 folks. And for people looking to expand their their impact as a leader, and say so maybe you want to follow in your footsteps and get to like a, a larger scope of organization. Were there certain experiences that you felt prepared you? for what you're doing now so that somebody who maybe wants to intentionally start to build in some of those things could could start to see like, oh, these types of experiences are going to help me expand my scope as a leader.
1: You know, if I look back at my career thus far, I would say one of the things that has really helped me, and by the way, it's not like a continuous sort of forward momentum it's kind of starts and stops fits and stops and these sorts of things right you know i've always been sort of leaning into to new opportunities and to uncertainty and you know i find that sometimes i do perfectly okay there. Other times, I really mess things up, <laughs> don't do so well. You know, so, so let me give an example, right? So I think probably one of the, the the biggest ones was when I talked about this team of 150 people. The background on that was that the team was focused on cloud-native applications. And so this is back in 2015-ish, 2016, when things were still very early. You know, Docker had just come out a few years ago. <clears throat> At the time, I was the CTO for End User Computing Group within VMware. And I started seeing this noise out there about containers and there's all this stuff around, oh, you know, virtualization is going to be dead and blah, blah, blah. Obviously, very funny to look at now and virtualization is still great. It's used for everything, even with containers. But at the time, it was very, you know, nerve wracking and worrisome. I really felt it to be an existential threat for the company. So I kind of rushed headlong into this, started organizing folks internally. There was a number of projects and other things already happening internally. And I helped put some structure around that, pull people together, start having these more unified conversations. I started giving readouts and updates to our uh, executive uh, team, and definitely got their attention. I think they you know they were very worried about this sort of thing. So what happened was that they eventually, Gave me the charter and funding to go start a new business unit focused on these cloud native applications. So again, this is where I had managed, you know, my CTO for end user computing, of four or five people, and now they pulled together a whole bunch of these other teams. And all sorts of stuff happened pretty quickly, which shot the team size up to 150. So I was very much in over my head, <laughs> and uh, you know, hadn't run a team of that size before, hadn't really even been, you know, responsible for driving sort of new product integration uh, at least not in the way that this thing was happening and so you know i had had these plans to churn out all these different products and things and so forth. So I was very much thrown in the middle of it. And uh, when I look back at it, I was, man, it was, those were some stressful days. <laughs> I think I probably got thrown a little too far in the deep end. I think we, we were trying to go too fast. I think we all felt this sort of weight of the the company on our shoulders, this this notion that, oh, we are the ones that have to help prevent this sort of calamity from happening, right? That, that was sort of, whether I said it explicitly or not, I kind of set the tone for the team, right? So I could see, you know, and I could feel a lot of the stress there and all these sorts of things and wasn't as crisp on some of the decision making wasn't as crisp at sort of leading at scale this sort of stuff and it was only it was actually through all those mistakes but well a couple of things so first I was given trust from our leadership team to be hey like let's throw Kit in there and see what he can do those sorts of situations while they're tough when I look back at it I'm like wow I would do so many things so differently now it was also probably the time of greatest growth and learning for me. And as I said, I've been able to then apply those learnings in this newer role here. So I think it's, you know, my my biggest thing is like lean in and like when something feels uncomfortable, like that's okay. Hey, you're kind of always figuring things out. I do think I'm a bit more cognizant of how far to push into the uncomfortable, but I, I think sometimes people might stray or stop too early on in that uncomfortableness.
0: The story you shared about the experience of starting up the the new business unit, I think is is so interesting because it's like you identified an existential opportunity for the company and really created momentum and interest around it. And then sort of, you have this kind of formally codified as a business unit to build out and support. For somebody who's never done something like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about like, what did that process look like when you're having the conversation with leadership? And they're like, we need to create a formal business unit around this. Here's the charter go. What did that look like?
1: If I think back it was a series of discussions in either late 2014 or late 2015, and it started out first as kind of, hey, like they had a question like what's going on with all this container stuff, like give us sort of a lay, lay of the land. And, you know, we sort of outlined what the things that we were seeing, the trends we were seeing, you know, this um, uh, move toward developers driving a lot of early architecture decisions that sort of could define, you know, long-term basically what vendors could be in or out of that architectural or that technology solution. And, you know, some of the other fundamental changes happening. So that was kind of the first step in kind of getting their interest in it. And then they were like, okay, how does this relate to us and what can we do about it? So there we, you know, started formulating some different plans. Okay. How will we need to change as a company, it's like we already started getting a bit into open source, but it's like clearly we need to do a lot more there, which we have actually. I'm really happy to see all the open source commitments that, that we made. But you know, there's other things. How do we better engage with developers? How do we drive more SaaS, you know, cloud service offerings? You know, so some of these different things. You know, there's a lot of strategy work really that, that was happening there. We went through the series of, I maybe mean, probably like once a month, actually, it was pretty relatively frequent because, you know, it takes many, many weeks to prepare for these things. But that was sort of the evolution. And then all out of it, they're like, okay, So we kind of came to, here's a series of, of new offerings we need. Here's a series of other investments that we need to make. So they said, okay, go and do it. Then, you know, we built up the team, we smashed all the different teams together into this new organization and went off and started executing on it. I think it was one of those things where, what do we do right? What we did right was got the attention of the executive saying, here's what could be an existential threat to the company. And something with that, you know, in my mind, I thought was going to, I guess I thought it would have a much bigger impact much sooner. What what we've seen now is things take a lot longer, actually, (laughs) than you might expect in enterprise software. But um, that was the first thing, to get their attention. So we got their attention. I, I think on the strategy side, when I look back, in some ways, I feel like we, we had some good ideas there, but we also didn't go far enough because what a lot of this represents, and it's both cloud native specifically, but probably the whole shift to SaaS and cloud services more generally, is that it represents a business model shift. And this is so foundational. And I don't think I really understood the full scope of it at the time about how, how foundationally we, we needed to change. And so when I, when I look back, I think we were sort of rushing headlong to try and get all this done because, again, we had assumed that our time horizon was much shorter than we actually had, right? You know, it's 2022 now, six, seven years uh, after where the story took place. And, you know, the the industry has evolved, but at the same time, it hasn't changed or been as quite as disruptive as as I had worried. And so I think if I were to do it again, it'd be less around, hey, let's go do these 10 things and more like let's pick, pick one or two that are really truly foundational, give ourselves time to figure those things out, and then start expanding once we get those kind of foundational things in place, right? So I think we did some things well, but also some things uh, I would do much differently if I could do them again.
0: I definitely appreciate the the reflection around there. When you were talking about the two sort of order of magnitude shifts, well, I'm just going to very sim- oversimplify sort of these two kind of big big leadership moments. I'm thinking of like the the quote or the the book like what got you there won't get you here or or some mm-hmm. version of that. What did you have to stop doing as a leader when you were making the shift or or something that you had to leave behind for, from either of those those leadership shifts?
1: My background before moving over to more of a pe- you know, people manager, CTO role is that uh, what was as an IC technologist, you know engineer, I was a developer for a long time, but then went more to like an architect and eventually became a principal engineer. Part of my, I think, identity was as the person who had the technical answers, you know, like people came to me to say, hey, how does this thing work? What can we do here? What are the options, etc. And I think for a long time, even as I started moving more into a people management role, I was still able to be hands on enough with the technology that I could still, you know, have pretty good understanding of it and be able to to be that that same sort of person one of the challenges that i have especially in this role is that i'm not that person at all anymore <laughs> and i feel like i still want to be but i'm just not because it's not what i can i don't have time for right? it where i got to focus on these other things and so i think it's a part of letting go of what is really again uh, uh, or was is still maybe a core part of my identity as you know an employee or, or as a person. I still consider myself a technologist, but now it's like you know the CTO <laughs> whiteboard five thousand foot level and very much shifting to relying on others for those sorts of technical insights and so forth. And so I, I, you know I, I think that's a really challenging one. And I also have to be very careful about trying to because my brain naturally. Goes to these things. So, for instance, what I was going to say, <clears throat> try not to be the technologist, because I think my brain will naturally go try to do that when we're having a technical discussion. And the reality is, I don't have as much context as I used to. And so, me jumping in and trying to solve it is not going to be usually helpful. And so, I kind of have to hold back a little bit. And so, that's one of the biggest challenges is kind of holding back in those areas. And I see, you know, I think this is a transition everyone goes through. To your point, what got you here, or got, whatever, I don't know how they phrased it, but <laughs> the things that made you strong in the past are useful, but probably aren't what define you or your success today. And I think oftentimes you do see people leaning on those things perhaps more than they should. So that's something I'm trying to be cognizant of and um, trying my best to, to let go of, or at least not let color my perception or uh, execution.
0: I want to bring up the sort of dilemma that, that you and I've talked about a little bit of sort of the navigating and negotiating these trade-offs of, you know, having the context, being really close to the details versus needing to be sort of at this high level. But the question I want to ask beforehand, just to kind of get the other side of of this is, you know, when, when you're considering your role now, like, I guess, what's the most important place that you spend your time now? Like, if you pick one thing that gives you the highest ROI and leverage as a leader at this level, what is it?
1: I think it goes back to what we talked about before, communication and clarity mm-hmm. around what 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 do I want to see happen? Where are we going? <clears throat> I'm the type of leader who is, you know, very much empowering his people to go and do their best work, right? So we talked about decision making before and I definitely want to make the right decisions, but at the same time I also want to ensure that my team can make their own decisions and have their own failures and, you know, learn as well, right? For me, the most important thing is clarity in communication and getting across, you know, sort of um, the, the big things that I want people to drive. So for instance, we have an internal innovation offsite we call radio, our, you know, research and development innovation offsite, and it's been around for 20 odd years. Within VMware, it's it's very well known and loved by the engineering population. It's kind of the, the pinnacle of the year for many of them.
0: So an amazing name for an R&D offsite.
1: Yeah, yeah, so cool. So we get like you know a couple of thousand folks together, uh, sharing ideas, presentations, all sorts of stuff. It's like three or four days of total fun. We had it in person uh, this year for the first time since you know the pandemic started. It was actually that we have it in May, typically. So the last time was May 2019. So it was just awesome to be back in person. Everyone was excited. And as traditionally, for the CTO to give the keynote of that event. And so I really look at that as the most important thing that I do all year long is that keynote Mm -hmm. because it really sets the tone. For the engineering population, <clears throat> and by the way, you know, I, as CTO, I kind of both have my own team. It's 2300 person organization, but I also represent VMware engineering overall. Which you know, we've got 17,000 people total in R and D. So you know, the message was very much for them. It's very much for the whole company, really, and it was about sort of some of the foundational changes that we had to make. So I spent a lot of time on that, and you know, it really came down. You know, I was I think heard a lot of positive things about it because I and what what I brought there was saying, hey, like we're not perfect, we know that. And I kind of talked about some of the ways in which things aren't going well, but some things that we're not doing well that we could be doing better. And I brought in a ton of data and saying, you know, kind of walked everyone through the narrative there and then focused on some specific changes that I wanted to see, kind of like three big things. The point of all all the story is that what I've been amazed to see is the ways in which that has driven various types of action across the organization, you know, from people I wouldn't even have thought about (laughs) to, to engage with. And it just kind of reinforced. In fact, just something yesterday, so in one of the presentations, I heard they're like, "Hey, we got inspired by your radio keynote. We're going off to doing this thing." And I'm like, "That's amazing!" And that's really, I think, the hallmark for me of a successful leader is when people hear the message and they bring their own creativity and passion to it, mm-hmm. and think about something that you would never think about. You know, I'm never going to tell this person go do X. Instead, I'm saying, "Here's you know, here's the." the goal, or here's the hill we want to climb, you know, let's figure out how to get there. And you, you just see the creativity and the passion come out. And that's, you know, again, I think the the most valuable thing that I can do is sort of targeting and driving that sort of creativity and, and passion amongst uh, the employee base.
0: Do you have a specific framework or approach? Like when you're when you're going into radio, and you're, you're considering, you know, what do I want to share with the team here? What does that like beginning like formulation process look like?
1: it's it's a good question so I would love to say it's all prim and proper and you know properly done but it's always like god such a stressful thing that goes down to the wire and you never know how it's going to go until like the very last minute so we typically start about a month out and I'll usually have some some broad themes in my head and I have a team uh, because I do so much you know speaking internally externally, I've got a team that that helps me with slide content and you know all the development all this sort of stuff so We, you know, bounce around some ideas and start creating an outline and so forth. But I would say probably the secret sauce to why, you know, that keynote in particular, let's say... Well, I think was so good is because I've got these kind of twenty or thirty odd folks across the company, senior technologists, <clears throat> people who I admire uh, deeply for their technical acumen and you know j- just their ability to um, hear something, see something, and-, and give really insightful feedback on it. So we got this group together, and we were this is a pretty compressed timeline. I remember, so it was like you know the the keynote was on. Tuesday of the week of radio, like the first day. So this is the week before. And so we do the first dry run with them where I kind of walk through the slides and kind of tell them, you know, not like speaking it as if I was actually doing it, but kind of walking them through it. And, you know, these folks are just awesome. And they, I mean, they eviscerated it. (laughs) It was a bloodbath. Oh, God, I got off that call. And I was like, Oh, I'm so screwed. This is going to be a total failure. But they were constructive. I mean, yeah, they eviscerated it telling me how it was wrong. But they were saying, Hey, here's what you need to do. Do this, you know, there's very constructive commentary coming in. And so then, you know, I I was like, Okay, screw this. So I cleared the calendar and just like sat there, redid it all and uh, got a new flow. And then we had another Session on Friday that week. And that one went so much better with, with that same group of people. And they still had a bunch of, like, you know, much more nuanced and specific tweaks and suggestions. I think the, the I, when I look back at that and, you know, that I've leveraged this, this group of folks uh, numerous times, like, first of all, we've developed a good rapport. They know they can say anything. Like, you know, I mean, they're not going to attack me personally, obviously, but they can say anything about the presentation, the content, whatever it is. We're all on the same page. We all know this is, hey, all in service of making this thing better. So all feedback is welcome, right? Even if it's harsh. And so, you know, they, they don't hold back. But what that does is it makes this thing so much better. And so I, I do think like this model of getting feedback, it's it's really, really helpful. And when I look back at it, the success of that, keynote is because of those folks and, and the relationship that we have where they feel comfortable giving that feedback
0: it's so so cool like having the sounding board to to give that that open yeah. and honest feedback and and for you to be able to receive it even though maybe like like it sounds like oh yeah this is really tough but like to just be able to to work through that in a productive way yep. for me i have a hard time with feedback so i'm like oh i, I can no, feel it it's, that I, moment, I, but it's but.
1: tough i got this <laughs> inner voice that's like you know getting angry and all these other things and like not happy about it. Cause uh, you know, it's easy to kind of personalize it too much and say, Oh, this is about you, but obviously it's not, and that's not how it's meant. And so you got to kind of, I got to do some self soothing usually in the moment. <clears throat> but I do think, you know, if I look at some of my superpowers, right. Or what, what makes me great or whatever is that ability to take feedback. I think that's pretty well known in this specific setting about a, a PowerPoint or whatever. Like I have it in my signature. So like, in fact, I wrote uh, a blog, Uh, article about this, like what's in my signature. And like one of the lines in there is if you've got a feedback for me, here's a form. Go give it to me. You can give it to me with your name or you can keep it anonymous. You know, we don't collect any info you know, we do that. And it's been great in terms of it's not too much feedback for me, generally, it's usually about the team or about the company, something like that. But I think it you kind of develop that reputation where people know that if they come to you with something that you're going to just take it at face value, that you're not going to look at it as a personal attack. And for me, that's like the most important thing as a leader. It's like if people can't give you feedback, or they feel afraid to do that, you're not going to know what's going on. And you're not going to know how to get better either. So I do think that's so important. And, you know, this worked well for me because
0: I can apply it in these like very
1: specific situations like with the radio keynote. Absolutely. Patrick
0: here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. So going back to the very early part of our conversation, when we were talking about some of the orders of magnitude shifts, you mentioned communication and influencing being a really key part of that. And then now here we're talking kind of of a broader vehicle of that, of being able to, to really have clear communication about where we're going, the challenges that we're facing, and then to align everybody around that. And then you were also talking about like being a technologist at heart and wanting to be able to, to like really master the different technologies that you're working with but that being a dilemma. So it kind of goes to a good I think tension point that we were talking about which is that dilemma between sort of the the high level vision setting, seeing things from 10,000 feet to being close to the details and leading, you know, at that that micro level. Talk to me about like your approach or or how you balance that dilemma or what or what you experience there. Yeah. No, it's a,
1: honestly this is something I'm still trying to figure out. One of my challenges is it's still trying to find the right level of granularity so to speak in terms of the updates like how deep am I going into all the different things that the organization is doing right clearly I've got you know sort of a high level thing but what I'm still trying to work out is like when people are giving me updates, on what they're working on, or project reviews, like, actually, you know, first of all, which project reviews do I need to be in versus not what level of depth they need to go into versus not. And this is something I, I, I still struggle with, I feel like, and I don't know, again, if this is my how much of my background as a technologist influences this, because it does, I frankly feel a little bit unmoored, so to speak, if I don't have, you know, that sort of detail, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I realize you know, there's no way I can get that level of detail about Everything that we're doing across 2,300 people, there's just a lot going on, and so I got to sort of figure out that balance. So it's honestly still something I'm working on, and I don't have the the magic formula for it yet. We're definitely trying a lot of experiments in terms of that. I guess the other thing I'll say is I like you know getting into the details. I like seeing how the technologies work, and the thing that's troubling for me is that I just can't do that for everything. So yeah, so I'm still trying to, to figure it out. <clears throat> because obviously, we only have so much time in a day. And how do I balance that versus many of the other things that, that I need to do?
0: So kind of related to this the dilemma, one of the questions I wanted to ask was diving a little bit deeper into sort of the, the influencing side of things. And so more on like the the one to one relationship, like either helping guide or influence sort of an outcome in a way where it's not directly telling somebody to do x. Can you share like when you're when you're like trying to consider one of those sort of influence-oriented decisions, what's your approach there?
1: So first thing is if I want someone to do something for reals, uh, then I'm getting to the mode where I just tell them to do it <laughs> rather than necessarily try to influence them. Sometimes I find people like leaders will be kind of in this weird state where they they really want something and just to get it done, but they're trying to sort of be nice, overly nice about it. Sometimes it's easier to say, Hey, this is what I want you to do. Now, in other situations, what I try to do there on the influencing front. One of the interesting things about the CTO organization that we have is that there's so many different disciplines across it, right? We've got people doing kind of academic research. We've got ESG teams, like experts on sustainability. We've got folks doing fundamental cloud services that support the rest of the organization. We've got people doing FinOps. So you got people kind of all over the place doing all sorts of different stuff, right? And the reason I bring that up is because these people are experts in those areas, and I am not. So that's something I've got to be... Very cognizant of, <clears throat> so I'm going to talk to them, saying, "Hey, I think we should do this, or we should go this direction." What I, what I try to focus on is what are the, what's the outcome or the benefit that I'm looking for, I'm thinking about here, right? And you know, leaving the how as much as possible up to them. But I'm also open to being challenged. And again, this is where the feedback thing becomes so important. And I find oftentimes that I don't really fully understand the space in the way that they do. And so I'm saying, "Here's kind of what we want. And here's how I think we should do it," and they're like because sometimes I naturally do that and I try not to, but then they'll say, no, that doesn't make sense here. You know, here's how we should be really be thinking about it. And so that back and forth actually creates a better solution in the end. Now, the, the other thing I'll say is that sometimes I'll go and tell someone something and it's not really a misunderstanding that they just, but they just uh, disagree. They say, no, I don't think we should do it. So, Then I've got to decide, okay, how much of that do I leave to their discretion? And how much do I sort of try to override it? And that's a really tough one as well. So I talked about guardrails before, and there's going to be certain guardrails um, that we're going to drive. So if, if this is a guardrail topic, I'm going to say, I'm sorry you feel differently, but we're going to do it, right? And so, again, you have to figure out how you're going to do it, but we're going to do it. If it's something that's more specific, like maybe a strategy discussion for their team or something like that, then I'm going to defer more to them. And if they say no, I don't think it's a good idea. Then I'll say okay. It'd be less likely I'd override that. So I think, the, 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 but then the question becomes: What do you consider a guardrail thing versus not? And so that's something that you know I'm trying to lead the team through a bit of a change about is that hey, like it's not do anything you want. You can do a lot of what you want, but within these constructs and these some confines, right? So
0: that's kind of how I think about it at a high level. Can you share a little bit more about what you mean by guardrail, just to, to yeah. give give a sense of what that looks like concretely?
1: Yeah, so like one of the things that we at VMware have done when you look at our organizational structure, so we got these business units, and the business units were originally created to provide autonomy and speed, right? That we have these different businesses, you know, storage and network and then core virtualization, so they need to be able to go do their own thing. So what what you find is that as that Structure has evolved over time. That each of the BUs are somewhat siloed, right? There's some interconnection, of course, but they also kind of do their own thing, make their own technology decisions, and so forth. And so, what that's created is this problem we have today, where we have a lot of these different technologies that are out there across the BUs. Now, Octo sits at the center of that, and we're trying to drive more standardization because that's where we see, like, when you go into SaaS cloud services, like this integration becomes super, super important. And so, what we're trying to do is, like, for instance, some of these guardrails around what can you as a business do and not do in terms terms of what services that you use can you build your own or do you have to use the ones that you know we in octo create and so there's you know that's like an example of a guardrail there's also other sorts of guardrails like we're talking about right now uh, within the team is, is around how do we do budget management especially in these kind of lean times that we're in as an industry <laughs> everyone's budget's tightening a bit I think there's a question of how much do I allow my staff and their teams just to manage to their own budget versus how much do we sort of centralize it and look at it as kind of a single Octo budget that we that then gives us a bit more agility to move things between teams when necessary. So those are that that would be an example of, okay. of guardrails there as well. Um, you know, another guardrail that we have is around our, some of our hiring practices. So you know, we require that uh, the candidate slate have a certain set of folks, right? We have to have at least one person who identifies as a woman, at least one person who identifies as an underrepresented minority to ensure that we're getting the best diversity possible, right? And that's just, that's a guardrail. You got to go do that. And if you don't, then, you know, there's an issue there. So, you know, there's some of these different uh, types of things. There's you know, we have things around T&E and, you know, there's different sorts of these things. So that's that's kind of what I mean by guardrails. And they, they can be any sorts of things, company level things or team level things. I think what we're trying to do, as I mentioned, is institute a bit more sort of octo level guardrails where it makes sense.
0: I want to go back to radio and the the, the R&D event, mainly around your perspectives on invention versus innovation and how you think about operationalizing innovation or building out sort of the innovation system. So Zoran, can you tell us a little bit about your perspective on that? Yeah, sure. This happened, this experience
1: happened um, many years ago, 2006, 2007. And it really helped crystallize my understanding of the distinction between innovation and invention because we tend to use the terms interchangeably, right? But what I sort of learned was that they're actually... Diametrically <laughs> different, uh, complementary, obviously, but very, very different concepts. Invention is really about creating something new or a new use for an existing thing, or innovation is really about change. So the story goes back to when I was trying to, so I created this technology called storage vMotion. We had something called vMotion before, which could transparently migrate a running virtual machine between two different physical hosts. People loved it. It was awesome. But the only downside was that the storage had to be on a shared storage device that was connected to the two hosts. So if you wanted to change the host, you could do that without downtime or disruption to the VM. But if you want to change the VM storage, well, you still had to take it down. And at the time, back in the day, you know, they still had these big sort of fiber channel SANs and doing SAN upgrades was a massive, you know, multi-day, multi-million dollar, you know, sort of effort. So, you know, we realized that we could actually implement the storage version of vMotion fairly easily and You know, originally, me being me, I was trying to circumvent all of our release processes because they seemed too onerous and (laughs) too much red tape. So I was like, hey, I can implement this, this stuff myself. I can get, I can find some people to test it and we're all good. Don't need to go through the big process there, filling out all the forms and so forth. And I almost did that. But the last, one of the last people I needed to test it said that they didn't have the resources. And in order to do it, I'd have to go through the formal process. So I'm like, okay, so go through the formal process. And of course, when I did that, they said no, because you know the release is full and all this stuff, we can't take anything else. So then I went on this sojourn of talking to people about it. And eventually, after a few, like literally four months of effort, probably found a product manager who got it and to convince the decision maker, in this case, the VP of product, for vSphere to uh, allow this feature in and kick something else out. And so, you know, then everything started moving and a thousand people were talking to me about all sorts of different things. So I thought it was interesting and and it highlighted for me the distinction between invention and innovation. So storage emotion was definitely an invention, right? It is something new that that we created there. But let's, you know, think about what would happen if that last person the QA person who said no, had said yes. Storage of the code base would be in the product, but we wouldn't be advertising it. We wouldn't be announcing that feature's there. Uh, we wouldn't be telling customers about it. Uh, if someone somehow found it, there'd be no one in support to help them use it if they ran into a problem. There'd be no documentation on it. You know, on and on it goes, right? And so what I realized, the sort of aha moment for me was like what I assumed as this onerous release process that had red tape and was just slowing me down was actually a gating function to this massive machine that we at VMware had built mm-hmm. that you know has sales people has marketing people has documentation people has support people has all these other things right and that obviously you want that machine working on the most valuable things. And the, the process to allow a new feature in or not was vetting the value of those features, right? And the things that this this machine would start working on. <clears throat> and that, you know, to really drive innovation, you've got to have all these other things. You can't just have some code sitting in a product that no one knows about. Like innovation would be customers actually leveraging this technology for some sort of business value or other value, right? But you need all these other things in order to make that happen. So that really highlighted for me the importance and distinction <clears throat> between innovation and just invention and uh, has really, I think, helped clarify my thinking there. And, and, you know, especially now as CTO, who's in charge of <laughs> innovation for VMware, that notion of staying True to the impact side of it. I think we as technologists can get caught up in cool new tech and all that. And, you know, we should. And certainly we do some advanced stuff that we don't really know what we're going to do with yet. But for us, the impact is really, really key and making sure that we're staying very tied to that impact. So, yeah, so that was a
0: pretty transformational mindset shift for me. That's, I think it's such a powerful mindset shift. Um, I think especially you're talking about the, the gateway between sort of unleashing all of this other support that actually puts the technology in the hands of people that are going to use it for, for impact. We've got a couple of rapid fire questions to, to wrap up our conversation kit. Sure. If you're ready to dive into those. Yeah, let's do it. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? So I just read a book called Atomic Habits, uh, which really
1: focuses on small changes. This notion that even a tiny change of 1% change if you do it consistently over time, can add up to very big transformation. And I I really just love the idea. And so now I'm starting to put some of that stuff into practice, keeping it simple. Um, But it, you know, really is is a great, I think, growth habit.
0: definitely love atomic habits. Um, It's one that I definitely need to revisit. So next question, what tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? So yeah,
1: so I think, you know, one one of the tools that I'm loving right now is Miro. We we use it extensively internally. It's just a great collaboration tool. I also think it's amazingly uh, filled this void that we've had during the pandemic of not being able to be there in person, but allows you to have such amazing inter- uh, interactivity. We use it a lot for offsites, which of course we do virtual have done virtually. Uh, so it's been it's been huge in terms of these pandemic times. That's great.
0: What's a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or it hasn't hit the mainstream yet?
1: Probably the trend that I'm most interested in right now would be enterprise blockchain. Now everyone knows about blockchain as cryptocurrency, but what we're seeing is that there's tremendous use for the blockchain technology in enterprises. Anytime you've got multiple parties involved who need shared access to a writable database, turns out blockchain's a perfect technology for that. You see it in capital markets and a stock market where you got all sorts of buyers and sellers and regulators and everyone needs access to that database. Today they they make their own private copies and caches and have all this like complicated stuff. But with blockchain, you can have a shared blockchain uh, do it. You got many different uh, companies along that supply chain. You want to fi- figure out the provenance for various objects. You know this sort of stuff. Think about housing and how many different parties are there trying to sell a house or buy a house, right? So I think <clears throat> this trend is kind of overshadowed by all the stuff happening on the crypto side, NFT side, etc. But in my mind, it's going to be very transformational on the enterprise side in probably three to five years time frame. And will move us from, you know, we kind of move from monolithic to distributed applications with cloud native. and I think with blockchain, it'll enable us to move from distributed to what's called decentralized, where those distributed apps are being operated by more than one uh, customer or more than one business.
0: Okay, two, two last quick questions. What's been the most meaningful or one of the most meaningful in-person experiences, either with your team, company, or otherwise? That
1: one's easy. I mean, it goes back to radio uh, this year. I mean, just the pent up energy to being back in person. You know, I think one of the interesting things that that we're seeing with the pandemic is both a loss of tradition and the creation of new traditions. The last stat I gave at the radio conference was that something like over 50% of VMware R&D were not working at the company when we had the last in- person radio three years before, right? <clears throat> that's because we've done acquisitions and done, you know a bunch of different things have happened for those half of, of the r and d folks like they didn't know they don't you know they don't have that background like they don't know from a gut sense how amazing radio is in a way that you only know if you've been there. and so that tradition kind of was partially lost, but I think the opportunity that we had this year was to recreate it and to evolve it. and so you know again that that's part of the excitement of it.
0: We're doing a big conference, so anybody who's transforming or recreating their event, like I have so many follow-up questions for there that I'm going to have to withhold because that's <laughs> no, so awesome. No, dude, it's, this
1: is the time to do it. If you're going to make a big change, like you know we did with our customer conference, what was formerly called VMworld is now called VMware Explorer. There was a whole rebranding and changing it to, sometimes people think, oh, it's just about virtualization, which it wasn't, it was about a lot of other stuff. But now it's more explicitly about multi-cloud. And, and you know, we did that this year and the timing was perfect, I think. And so, yeah, so now's the time
0: you know to create these new traditions. Fantastic. So final question kit to send us off is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now?
1: Well, it's it's the Silicon Valley mantra of disrupt yourself before others disrupt you. And that was actually the theme of my radio keynote as a matter of fact. What we're seeing for the company is that over my 19 years, you know, there's so many parts about that I love. So many parts parts about our culture that I love. But at the same time, You know, the world's very different than it was 20 odd years ago when the company was first founded. And while some of those cultural aspects have served us well, some of them are also now holding us back. And so part of the call in that radio keynote was to say, hey, here are the things that we need to change culturally as well. And, you know, we've got to do it ourselves because if we don't, then the industry will do it for us over time, right? So I think that was the big call to action. And uh, so that notion of disrupting yourself and transforming yourself is really core to, to what we're th- focused on right now.
0: A great way to to close us off. Kit, thank you for sort of serving as this this lighthouse spotlight, helping us understand the different worlds of magnitude of leadership and the honest reflection around communication and influencing and the different ways that you've learned and grown along the way. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.